0: This morning's reading is Romans chapter 1, and it's verses 7 to 13, and it's on page 1128 of the few Bibles. Romans chapter 1, verse 7 To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my, my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Peter Christ.
1: Well, on Sunday mornings, we're looking at the, really, the, the longest letter of the New Testament. In fact, it's probably the longest in antiquity. Paul's letter to the Christian community at Rome. And we saw last week how Paul had introduced himself and summarised his understanding of the gospel, which is literally the good news, which he'd received directly from Jesus Christ himself. And this week we're looking at just verses seven to 13, and it's really about the Romans. He begins with a customary greeting, verse seven. He then thanks God for them. He then lets them know that he's been praying for them even, if, even though he's the vast majority of them he has never met because he's never been to Rome before. And then he looks forward to some mutual encouragement, verse 11, and finally he looks forward to seeing uh, many in Rome um, embrace Christ and join the Christian community. There is an outline at the back of the, uh, the, the service sheet. Um, although we won't actually come to it until almost the end, because we're going to be looking—this is—we're um, just—we're going to be looking at Rome itself and the Romans, and that's the kind of introduction to the whole of uh, Romans that we're looking at. Because we need to get our bearings, we need to appreciate the context, uh, not just uh, for today's talk, but for the whole of the Book of Romans. Now, all of us have some acquaintance with the Roman Empire, don't we? I mean. We've all seen Ben Hur. I mean, you know, the Charlton Heston, the definitive version, not this computer aided graphics thing which has just recently appeared, which has not apparently got terribly good reviews. We've all seen Spartacus, Kirk Douglas, Masada, Peter O'Toole. If you're old enough, even Cleopatra, you know, with Richard Burton and. um, Elizabeth Taylor, or more recently, there's been *The Last Legion*, *The Eagle*, and *Gladiator* with that Australian roughneck Russell Crowe. Of course, some of you may be limited to *Asterix* or *Carry On*, *Cleo*, but they're not quite so, <laughs> quite so helpful, really. But leaving them aside, I mean, those films—I'm sure there's a heck of a lot of kind of fiction in the story, but you know, you can't escape the uh, the might and the splendour of Rome, the discipline and the organization of the Roman legions, so organized that they were able to defeat opponents who outnumbered them 10 to 1. Their road network is one that we still follow here in North Hampshire. The sheer scale of their architecture has in many places been preserved, as has their literary record many of our words we use today are (coughs) theirs. But alongside that, there was a dark side, their knife-in-the-back politics, their cruelty. Slavery was widespread, the brutality of their military machine. They would often just slaughter everybody, man, woman and children, or if not, carry them off into slavery. They terrorized conquered peoples and the slaves in Rome by their preferred practice of crucifixion, where the poor wretched individual was nailed to the cross both by wrists and through ankles. Seneca the Younger recounts even by impaling their private parts. Cicero described crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It was a slow, painful death. And our word excruciating, literally out of crucifying, is derived from it. Nonetheless, in kind of military and economic terms, Rome was an incredibly successful empire, growing from a small settlement on the banks of the Tiber to a territory which stretched from Britannia in the northwest to Arabia in the southeast, from Mauritania in North Africa to Romania in Far Eastern Europe. This little animation will give you some appreciation of their expansion. Well, they rose, they fell, they divided, and then they fizzled out. Such is the fate of all human empires. Well, at the time of writing this letter to the Romans, which was about 57 to 59 AD, the the, the Republic, which had been ruled by the Senate, had been uh, taken over by an absolute and centralised government headed by the Caesar. First Julius, then Augustus, Tiberius, the insane Claudius, who was assassinated, and at the time of writing, Nero, who took over from 46 AD. At first, he was guided, because he was a boy, by two pretty shrewd senators, and things were okay. But as he grew up and realised his absolute power, he fell the way of many others, where absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it did with him, and eventually, many Christians paid with his megalomania, With their lives. Now in the middle of the first century the population of Rome was not less than 1.3 million people of whom half were slaves. Only a few thousand people owned any property and every conquest as the Empire expanded brought a fresh batch of slaves. But the Romans practiced something called manumission, which is um, where a good slave might be freed by his master or may even earn his own freedom. And on being freed, the slave became a Roman citizen, where a whole range of jobs, such as traders, midwives, teachers, you know, became open to them. Some of them became very wealthy but the stigma of slavery never quite enabled them to be wholly accepted amongst the upper classes of the empire. Not surprisingly, Rome was very cosmopolitan, uh, with slaves coming from all parts of the empire. But each frequent, fresh batch of slaves meant that 200,000 of the population, which was the lowest figure in the time of Augustus, who were freedmen, that they were dependent upon the state for handouts. They were unemployed. All roads, it said, lead to Rome, either literally or metaphorically by sea. As administrators, soldiers, traders, educationalists, entertainers, made their way to and from the capital. The Jewish community in Rome arrived about 63 BC when Pompey defeated Cleopatra and then captured Jerusalem and he brought back from Jerusalem many Jews who were sold into slavery. And when freed they formed a Jewish community on the far side of the Tiber. Julius Caesar, for reasons of expediency, granted the Jews very special favours. And except during the period of Claudius, those special favours continued under the other Caesars who succeeded him. And their privileges were very great. They enjoyed freedom of worship. They didn't have to worship Caesar, they were exempted that. They had freedom of military service, they didn't have to fight in the legions. They were freed from certain taxes. They had the Sabbath recognised for them as a day of rest. And they had the right to live according to their ancient traditions, and they had full jurisdiction over their own members, the kind of 1st century Sharia law. Now most of these Jews were very poor. They lived um, on the edge of society. They managed to eke out a living. But above them, some did better and they became moneylenders, traders, retailers. And at the top were some very wealthy financiers. That may have been why they had special privileges. The empire depended on their loans. They were quite numerous. I mean, at the time of Christ's birth, there were probably 10,000 Jews at Rome, a million in Egypt, and three quarters of a million in Palestine, about 8% of the Roman Empire. By 60 AD, the Jewish settlement in Rome was not less than 30,000 and quite possibly 50,000. And around the synagogues were a kind of fringe of Gentile God-fearers who'd been attracted to monotheism and to the morality that they practiced. You see, the panoply of pagan petty deities was just implausible to them. And the truly appalling debauchery and brutality that was life in Rome meant that they longed for intimacy and fidelity They longed, like any other human being, for love. Now, we don't know who brought the Gospel to Rome. It certainly wasn't Paul, nor was it Peter, even though later traditions may have thought so. Most probably it was brought there by Jews who had been on pilgrimage to Jerusalem around about 30 AD when they were privy to witness the crucifixion the resurrection possibly, there are 550 different people witnessed the resurrection of Christ, the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And as they listened to Peter's explanation on the day of Pentecost, they believed and they brought the gospel back to the capital. And there it spread amongst the Jewish community who recognized Jesus as their anticipated Messiah and it spread amongst the God-fearing fringe of Gentiles. Tacitus, the Roman historian, observed that the Jewish community around about, the, around about 60 AD was, quote, vast in number. Now, Paul had met Roman Christians in other parts of the empire, perhaps most notably when he uh, met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, who were from a Jewish background, who had heard and come to faith in Christ in Rome and who had moved to Corinth. And there in Corinth, Paul lived with them for 18 months in 51 AD, and he was impressed by them. And that may have triggered off his desire to go to Rome, to the capital. He longed to go there, but he had been so often hindered, most likely because, really, he's spreading the gospel throughout Turkey and Greece Um, was taking up all his time. Now in uh, Rome, as far as in Paul's mind, there were different categories of people he was thinking of. There were the Jewish Christians. There was a larger number of converted Gentiles. There were a mass of unbelieving Jews and a mass of unbelieving Gentiles. Among the Jewish Christians, though, there were two particular divisions. They were quite distinct. One of the sections, um, consisted of Jews who were like Aquila and Priscilla, and the people mentioned in chapter 16, who were Paul's friends, who were his fellow workers, who were in partnership with him in the Gospel. And then there was another group, extremely influential and energetic, who were Judeo-Christians. They were Jewish more than they were Christian, unfortunately who, like the Judaizers of Galatia and elsewhere, were bitterly opposed to Paul. They disputed his apostolic authority because he was, as he said, one untimely born. He encountered the ascended Christ, whereas all the other apostles, of course, encountered the risen Christ. They they saw his ascension, but they'd actually experienced contact with him whilst he was living on earth. And these people, these Judaizers, they kind of misrepresented his teaching and they denounced him as a renegade from the faith of his fathers. Now, amongst the Gentile Christians who made up most of the Roman church, there were similarly two sections. There were those who had been converted to Christianity directly from paganism and probably a larger group who were converts, first of all from paganism to Judaism, and then from Judaism to Christianity. And it's assumed in the writing that these people have access to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that they were familiar with the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish laws. So as he prepares to come to Rome, he's aware that this Judaizing faction is strong and is stirring up animosity against him. And he indicates that, he's aware of it in Romans 3.8. He says, why not say, as we are being slanderously reported, as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. So there's evidence that he was informed that his great doctrine of justification by faith alone had been seized upon by these adversaries, and to um, misrepresent him, as what they would call an antinomian. Anti is against Nomos' law. They were against the law. They thought you didn't have to kind of bother to keep the law anyway. They thought that that's what Paul was saying. You know, you don't need to keep the law because you don't need to fulfil the law in order to be saved. You don't need to fulfil the law in order to live, which was a dreadful distortion. Paul understands that you cannot... Earn your salvation because none of us can live a perfect life we have to be given it freely and it's available to be given because of what Christ's done on the cross for us it is free gratis and for nothing it's by grace that's true and then Paul would say out of gratitude for that we should follow the moral law because that expresses the character of God who has restored our image who has the Spirit of Christ living in us. But these Judaizers really wanted to go backwards. They wanted to um, really give up some of the things they have, may well have been taught about the Gospel. And they twisted what he's saying. So he has to, if you like, sort out this distortion by correcting this kind of faction who have this false understanding as to the way of salvation. So among the saints who had been called, as uh, we put it, they were predominantly mainly uh, Greek-speaking freemen or slaves who were from a Gentile background. Though some of them we uh, know were from a Jewish background, he refers to them as his kinsmen. (coughs) There's a massive long list of people in chapter 16, which gives us some kind of insight into kind of how the community of Christians at Rome was composed. In uh, Romans 16, verse 7, we have Andronicus and Junius. Apostles, that would be apostles with a small a. They were people who were sent from one church to another rather than a capital A, someone who'd encountered the risen Christ and been commissioned by him to be the authorised spokesman. But it's interesting, they are said to have been in Christ before Paul. I wonder whether they had been Jewish Christians who'd gone to Pentecost in 30 AD and then taken the faith back to Rome. 1610, greet those who belong to the households of Aristobulus and in 1611, Narcissus. Now, Aristobulus is mentioned by um, the Roman historian Josephus. He is most likely the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. And the Herodians also lived in Rome, particularly in the summer months. And Josephus says of Aristobulus, that he made his home at Rome. Now, was this guy a Christian? Well, probably not, because he's not greeted by name. But some of his household of freemen and slaves were, Christians who'd converted, were, were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Then he says, greet those in the household of Narcissus. Now, Narcissus himself is not greeted, which must therefore mean either he's a deceased Christian or more probably that he's a pagan, he may well have been a notorious freedman of the emperor who was called Tiberius Claudius Narcissus. The Roman writer Juvenal says his wealth was proverbial and his influence over Claudius was practically unlimited. But he'd been forced to commit suicide by Agrippina shortly after Nero's accession to the throne, only a year or two before Paul is writing. So what happened to his household? Well, in those situations, it would be absorbed by the imperial household, by Caesar's household. So this group of people who would have been turned Narcissiani, which means of Narcissus, they would have been part of Caesar's household, but a distinct section. And it is to them that Paul specifically greets them as Christians, those in the Lord, who are in the Emperor's household. So just 30 years, if not before after Jesus was around, there are people who are coming into contact with the Emperor of Rome, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what strikes me about all this context stuff is how God is overarching and orchestrating everything and then for Paul to turn up in Rome and for the Christian faith to be established strongly at the heart of the Roman Empire. Jesus as expected and predicted, was born a Jew in the Holy Land. But at a time when there was phenomenal political stability, that's necessary if ideas, if faith, if the gospel is to be easily transmitted. Rome ruled the known world. Greek was the common language of commerce. Travel would not be bettered for at least another 1,800 years. At the crucial last days of Jesus, on a feast, there would be Jews from all over the known world present at Pentecost in order to hear the Gospel. And having witnessed those events, they were able to take that message back to the Jewish community, the sizable Jewish community, planted there 90 years before in Rome. Jews and Gentiles, God-fearers among them, embraced the faith. Now they weren't particularly of noble birth, but they were there right at the heart of the capital among the household of the emperor. They were despised often, But nonetheless, people were attracted to them by their monotheism, by their morality, by their love for one another. And they won converts by their ability to explain the faith and to exemplify Christ in their lives. Paul, in his travels, had met Christians from Rome. Um, And Paul, with his background, was ideally prepared to reach these Gentiles. He was a Jew, but he was one that had been brought up in the Gentile world. He could straddle both. He could, through his person if you like, bring what had a a faith that has its origins in, in Judaism, he can bring it into a faith which is for the entire world, which God had long been planning for. So, from Jewish Jerusalem to Imperial Rome, all orchestrated and planned by God, using people he had prepared for long in advance. Now, the Christian community at Rome, as we've seen, needed sorting out. Their core teaching, justification by faith, was um, at risk of corruption. And if you corrupt that, of course you have managed to deny access to God the Father, because you kind of airbrushed out his way in which he is able to forgive people. So it was vital that he got them thinking straight. But having got them thinking straight, he wanted, he says, to join with them in uh, having a harvest, introducing many others to the faith. Now our passage, in case you thought I'd forgotten this or you were worried that I'm going to take even longer explaining it, you need not worry, because it's fairly obvious. There are some customary greetings. They are the kind of words used in the greetings of both the Jewish and the Gentile world, but of course these words are now pregnant with Christian meaning. And Paul moves on to say four things in verses 8 to 13, which are very obvious to apply. He thanks God for them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul had encountered Christians uh, from Rome, elsewhere as we've mentioned, and probably every Christian community in the Roman Empire would be aware that there were now Christians in Rome. Maybe even they knew they were in the Emperor's household. Today we thank God that the Christian faith (laughs) Is present in every one of the 195 countries that go to make up the world. Next he prays for people that he'd never met, verses 9 to 10, which is quite amazing. You may pray for somebody you don't know if requested by a mutual friend. Eric is uh, in his 80s. Um, a couple of years ago he visited Uganda with a party from his church for the first time. He met local people and was able to ask them about their relatives and about other local Christians. How did he know them? Well, he and his late wife had been praying for the hospital work by Christians in Kizizi, in Uganda, for over 50 years. He'd prayed for the people, and except for a few expats, he'd never met any of them until then. Next, Paul looked forward to mutual encouragement, verse 11. He is eager to impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Well, he can't mean that he will give a spiritual gift to anyone because of all the lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. They are all given by one member or other of the Trinity, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. What he must mean is that he will exercise one of his gifts, which in this context is most likely to be the gift of teaching, because it's Christ's truth understood and taken on board and worked through in our life that gives us assurance, confidence, and real comfort. But also they will, be encouraged, they will encourage him by the, no doubt the stories of their own conversion that he will be eager to hear about, how um, they have been changed by the grace of God. On Sunday evenings at the moment, Steve has arranged for um, different members of our congregation to be interviewed and to share something of how the Lord called them and brought them to faith in Christ. That of course is encouraging for all of us who hear, but it's particularly for those of their friends who'd been involved in the process. And he looks forward finally to reaping a harvest among them as he'd done among other Gentiles. So once he'd straightened out their teaching, he was able with them to persuade more Gentile Romans to embrace the faith and discover what they were made for. And as we end, I think it's instructive to notice how the apostle prayed in verse 10, which might be of help to us. He says, "'And I pray now, at last, by God's will, "'the way may be opened for me to come to you.'" Now, Paul was an apostle with a capital A. He received direct revelation about the whole plan of salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. He possessed timeless truth which he passed on in oral and written form about what Jesus had done and how he wants us to live. But for much of his life and work he functioned just like we do, without that infallible hotline to heaven for specific revelation no he knew he was called to be an apostle to the gentiles and he was gradually working his way round from jerusalem through syria through turkey through greece into the balkans and he had plans yep to go on to italy to rome itself and then on to spain that's where the gentiles were and i suppose he could have gone the other way Around the southern Mediterranean, but he went the northern way. There are more people on the northern side. And he thought that the best way to carry out his call. But his prayer, which to the best of his ability he believed to be in accordance with God's will, was tentative. That a way may be found, may be opened, he prayed. You know, he knows enough from both personal experience and scripture that sometimes the plans which we think are um, most obviously would be in accord with God's will are frustrated by other people and other life events. And yet, nonetheless, good still results. It's like Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, the guy with the multicolored coat. He was sold into slavery by his envious brothers. And then decades later, God had enabled him to be positioned so that he was able to save them and the embryonic nation of Israel and so fulfill and secure God's plan of salvation. You meant it for harm, he said to them when they came to him as the Grand Vizier of Egypt to buy food at a time of famine. But God, Joseph said, meant it for good. For God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance, Genesis 45. Now we know God has a grand plan. He has enlisted us in partnership with him. He oversees and orchestrates everything. We can be confident about the big picture, but we're tentative about the details. But rest assured, though, God is in charge. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on that uh, final note, we pray. We recognize your orchestrating hand over the whole of history. That without riding roughshod over people, you so direct so that your plans are fulfilled. May we have uh, trust and confidence in that, in all our doings in partnership with you. Amen.